some years ago, a man, a man with a PhD, told me that after I had uh, preached that particular sermon, uh, that it was lacking. He told me that it lacked an eschatological consciousness. I thanked him for his input and drove away wondering, what in the world is he talking about? In essence, he meant that my sermon lacked a sight of the victory that is ours in the end, the hope that we are to have for things that are but are not yet full, that we must live with a consciousness toward what will be. Over the years, I came to understand that idea, but I would confess to you that my understanding was more intellectual than it was anything else. More recently, the Lord has and is causing the clouds to further disperse, and I am seeing this, I'm feeling this, in ways I have not known. What is waiting for the Christian? It seems to be getting bigger and bigger in my mind's eye. The Bible, as you know, is a realistic book. It sugarcoats nothing. It doesn't pretend that life is all neat and tidy. But it also gives us hope. Not a wish and not a if-only kind of hope. It gives us a living hope. 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse 3, reading through verse 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now, for a little while, if necessary, You have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. Merciful Father, now may we hear your voice. Speak to us, your people, encourage us, strengthen us, that we might walk boldly and confidently in the victory that is ours in the Savior. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I had a young boy on the flag football team I coached this fall who I enjoyed getting to know, an eight-year-old boy. I didn't notice it until my son pointed it out to me, but his dad was never at a game. Not one. I am, I'm not sure his dad is in the picture, but only his mom came to the games. This particular eight-year-old worked really hard, and he obviously wanted to please. One time I was putting other kids in the game, and he very respectfully asked me if I wanted him to go out of the game and go to the bench. 
And I said, oh, goodness, no. I can't have you out of the game. You're my best flag puller. I have rarely seen a kid light up like he did. You would have thought he just won a medal of honor. You were really good. I need you. We need you. It wasn't much. Or was it? We all need an attaboy once in a while. We all need to hear words of affirmation, encouragement, knowing that folks are with us, that they're for us. And some people never or rarely get them. People can live in homes where they never hear, I love you, never hear, I'm proud of you, never hear, you did a good job. And I would remind you again, saying I love you is not information. Saying I love you is food. It's nourishment. And everyone needs to eat every day. Now, I have mentioned in the past we need to be very careful that we do not seek our ultimate affirmation uh, from people lest we take our eyes off the Lord. But how about this for an affirmation? Look at verse 7 in our text. The praise, glory, and honor that is given there in the text. Most linguistic scholars say that is a reference not to the praise of God, not to the praise of our Savior, but it is praise to you. Praise to the Christian from God. This is God's saying with a a divine superlative, good job, well done. Peter says the same thing in chapter 5 at verse 4. God sings your praise for your life of seeking to be faithful to Him. God is for you. God is with you. And He has this, this great family, both seen and unseen, that is for you. And that, that is something. Our text is about hope and joy. It is about what Christ's victory over death and sin means for us, what it promises, not only at the end, but while we live because of the end. You remember last week we looked in some detail at the biblical motif of the wilderness. We concluded that the wilderness is a terrifying and difficult place, that it is inevitable for all of us, but but God is there. God is with us in the wilderness, in the wandering, in the pilgrimage. And that is everything. This text was used in the early church as an introductory prayer to a baptismal liturgy. Actually, the entire book was the baptismal liturgy. Our text was the beginning prayer of that liturgy. In those days, baptisms were scheduled, if possible, for Easter Sunday. The church's massive and joyous celebration of Christians' victory over sin and death through Jesus Christ. No wonder, as the text calls us to marvel at God's mercies, His work of creating us new, giving us a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus, and baptism celebrates and initiates the glory of that great work. The victory of Jesus gives us a future. And, according to verse 6, It gives us something to rejoice in and to hope in and to live boldly. We have an inheritance. This inheritance is marvelous beyond words. 
It is life eternal filled with joys and wonders. It is described here to us as being imperishable, undefiled, unfading. And it's for you. It's kept for you, protected by God Himself. As we get ready to roll into what we now call the holidays, I was thinking about Christmas. As a kid, you can't sleep the night before. All the excitement, what will be waiting for you. We all have such stories and we all have those kinds of memories. As you get older and you have children and grandchildren, at least in my family, you're just as excited. But it isn't for what you're going to get. It's an excitement for what you're going to give. You want to see those shining faces and the excitement and the joy that is theirs. Well, God makes a promise in this text. Not only that He has something for you, but that He has spared no expense. Sacrificed what is, what is most precious to Himself to make sure you get home so that He can give you even more. God has for you an inheritance. And in case you're wondering what it is, well, first, as he tells Abraham, he is our inheritance. He tells Abraham, I am your exceedingly great reward. So that's the first thing. Your inheritance is God in all of his fullness. But as if there could be more, there is more. Not only to enjoy the glory and wonder of God, but your inheritance consists of it consists of everything. The inheritance of the saints is everything. What did we read this morning? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not also with him graciously give us, next two words, all things? God promises in verse 5, he's going to bring you there. He's going to keep you He's going to guard you through the faith He has given you until He can shower you with life and joy that is impossible to imagine. As the Father, it is as though He can hardly wait to shower you with treasures and to praise you, to welcome you with open arms. Well done, my son. Well done, my daughter. Come. I have all of this for you. That is the future. That is what Jesus' resurrection has secured. And in this, Peter says, in this we rejoice. And I would simply ask you, make more of this than you do. We are to live with such confidence, such joy, and a hope that is, that is just as alive as is Christ Jesus himself. Here is our greatest weakness. We lose sight of all of this. We forget. And we live as though this were not waiting for us. We live as though this is not what we are to have our eyes fixed upon. We must walk and live and sing, and we must even grieve in the victory of Jesus. Your sins forgiven, Satan cast out, death itself conquered. What can this world do to us? And this inheritance being that it never fades and it never perishes, it is eternal. 
and it is yours forever. Again, do you ever stop and just take time to rejoice in these things? Or have the distractions of this world so overwhelmed you? Do you just trudge along every day, joyless and hopeless, dreading sleep because it means you have to get up and and do it all over again? Christ Jesus has won a great victory. And remember, it wasn't for Him. He didn't come to defeat death. He didn't come to cast sin into the depths of the sea for Himself. He had no sin. Death was not a threat for Him. He did all of this for you. He did this for us. He did this so that the plan of the Father to make everything new, to remove the curse, to make things as they were supposed to have been. And He wants us to live, not as those in chains because of shame or guilt, not as those who are held captive by sorrow and loss, but as those who fly in hope That he has erased the shame and the guilt. He removes the stain of sin. He takes the sorrow and the loss and miraculously, mysteriously, turns them into joy and dancing. Do not let sin, do not let hurt and sorrow keep you from this life. Do not let it rob you of the fellowship and love you are to have with others by living in bitterness and unforgiveness. Do not live in the sin and the muck of it all. No, live in this living hope that makes to you these incredible promises. And as we rejoice for what will someday be ours in fullness, it will be a short time, Peter says, for a little while. We will need to endure. Endure grief, sorrow, and pain. Because the fullness of the victory is not here yet. It's coming. It's coming. But it's not here yet. And yet this too has purpose. Namely, to get us to fix our eyes on what the Lord says will be. We don't see it all that clearly at times, and our faith, it needs to be sharpened. The significance of this living hope we have because of the mercies of God is the most extraordinary and eternally significant thing that ever happens in the world. However, it does not insulate a person from the shocks and sufferings of life. That hardly needs to be said in this congregation on this Lord's Day. Our Savior lived a difficult life, though a perfect man. His sorrows were necessary because as we learn in many places in the Bible, the kingdom of God advances through suffering. And until Christ comes again, listen carefully, until Christ comes again, there is no path to heaven that does not pass through the gates of death. Now in these days, the skeptic might ask us, where then? Where where is this so-called living hope? Where is this great advantage of being a child of God when, when one must pass through such sorrows? Where, the unbeliever wants to know, where is the life of God in the soul of man in such circumstances that we are made to endure? Ah, but the only perfect man who ever lived was a man of sorrows, 
And men and women made in his image must be sorrowful too and must be sorrowful for the same reasons. The sorrows that accompany our living hope are supremely sorrows of love, sorrows of sympathy, sorrows of offended righteousness, sorrows of the frustration that this world is not yet heaven and sorrows that we ourselves are not the Christians that we will someday be, that we want so badly to be. Faith knows that even a living hope must suffer. And faith knows why. Faith can see that the only authentic human nature is the nature that suffers in the right way for the right reasons. All who have a living hope but who live in a dying world must grieve. Faith knows that. And above all, the Christian experiences such sorrows very differently because a living hope sees through it to what is to come and sees through it even in the darkest night of the soul. How can Paul describe us as sorrowful yet always rejoicing or the women at the, at the tomb of Jesus being afraid yet filled with great joy? Well, I would ask you, how could it not be? We, as God's children, we are those upon whom mercies have been lavished. How could we not be drawn inflexibly, invariably, inexorably to those things that are the most precious to God Himself? You, you all know this. You have this. You want this. To be drawn to those things that are most precious to God Himself. Peter speaks of this inexpressible joy. Do we understand what he's saying? As many of you know, C.S. Lewis spoke a good deal about joy, titled his autobiography, Surprised by Joy. But by joy, Lewis meant that ineffable experience that one has in the encounter with something that is truly beautiful an experience that transforms one's life, alters one's horizons, changes one's standards, creates longings and and opens the mind to glorious possibilities that were unknown before. Joy remains a longing, a hunger, but it is a hunger and a longing for what one knows actually exists. For Lewis, one scholar writes, joy was the longing for some lost paradise, but even the longing for it is itself a kind of paradise. This joy is never quite possessed. Our fingers never close around it fully. It never becomes something that you have and can just use as you please. It's always, in a sense, over there. It's always drawing you forward, leading you onward. And then finally, right into the embrace of the Savior himself. Having a living hope because of Christ's victory is the fact of all facts in human history. He who is always, as it were, on the periphery of your life and your experience, always there, full of mercy, and yet always saying to you, Oh, oh, my brother, my sister, there is more. Much, much more. I confess to you that I read our text this past week a number of times, very slowly. 
trying to get it through my thick head. I wanted it to cut through the sorrow like a knife. And I admit, it was slow, like a trickle. And then all of a sudden, a burst. I couldn't help but think of Lindsay saying to Jacob, saying to her family, and saying to all of us, Oh my, you are not going to believe this. I can hardly wait for you to get here. I can hardly wait for you to see all of this. This is more wonderful than anything we have ever imagined. Just a little while. Endure with joy for just a little while. Because everything you have ever heard or thought about this life, about my life now, is so much greater than we thought. So much more than ever we dreamed of. I came across this poem from John Oxingham, written in the year 1900. It's brief. And death itself to her was but the wider opening of the door that had been opening more and more through all her life and ne'er was shut and never shall be shut. She left the door ajar for you and me and looking after her we see the glory shining through the cleft. Brothers and sisters, I would ask you to remember that in the Bible, the whys regarding suffering difficulties and trials are not answered. They are overcome. God doesn't abstractly solve a problem. God condescends to inhabit and to absorb the mess that we have made. He is a God of humility who endures suffering in order to overcome suffering. Our living hope is not found in an intellectual mastery of some philosophical problem. It is found in divine solidarity in relationship with our God and Father through Jesus Christ, our elder brother. Jesus said to his disciples, and he says to you this morning, My friends, I have overcome suffering. I overcome evil. I overcome death. I overcome all your shame. I overcome all your guilt. And I give to you a living hope. And I do this all in my body, with my blood. So here, take it. Eat my body, drink my blood, and receive the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Oh, and just wait. Just wait until you see what I have for you.